Please open up your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians. Chapter 6. And we're going to be picking back up where we left off last week um, in, uh, with verse 10. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Well, the title today is Walk in Victory. And as we finish the book of Ephesians, I'll tell you it's why it's, as we studied through these, these, uh, these past several weeks, it's my favorite book. Because it is so complete of the first three chapters, Paul spoke to us about um, the, 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 the promises, the truths, the, what he has given us uh, in, in our relationship with God, uh, the doctrinal truths that we can hold on to, the first three chapters. And the last three chapters is all the application. How do we live this life? How do we behave as a Christian? How do we live day to day? And how do we address the things that are part of this life? And I love this last portion of, the, of, this, of this epistle, this letter that Paul was writing to the believers in Ephesus, is that because of the life that we live in Christ, there's the enemy that comes against us. And how do we combat this this enemy and how do we keep this enemy out of the camp and out of our lives so that we can live a life that is pleasing to our Lord. So you can really say that you're in the army, right? You're, you're, you're in the army now and, and sooner or later every believer discovers in this Christian life this, this battleground that you, must, that you must face and you must work through. Everyone comes to Christ and say, oh, everything's going to be perfect. I won't have any more challenges and issues. But that's so contrary. That's just false teaching. You know, some teachings out there says, oh, you'll never get sick again because you'll be in Christ. If you have faith, you'll never get sick. That's just false teaching. You just don't listen to those people. But there's a battleground. It's not a playground. You've heard me say that so many times. But the Lord is with us. And that is if we face our enemy who is so much stronger than you and I apart from the Lord. So if you and I think we are going to go into battle and fight our enemies in our own strength, in our own way, and leaning on our own understanding, you have been misled. You, you, the pride is way too much for you right now. If you, you really need to humble yourself because the enemy is very powerful apart from the Lord. We need the Lord for daily walk. We need him daily to give us the strength. And we will see Paul is very clear uh, of that need for us. Paul found it appropriate so many times in the scriptures to use the military as a illustration or metaphors to help illustrate the believer's conflict with Satan and the battle that takes place. He himself was chained, if you remember right now as he's writing this epistle, this letter, he was chained in a dungeon in a prison with a Roman soldier. I mean, how much more can you be? So you can see as he comes out with this illustration, he's sitting there chained to this Roman guard day in and day out. So, of course, he's looking at these guys and looking at the armor of the armor that they're wearing. And he's going to use that as a way of communicating uh, what we need to put on as well in this battle. And as he writes this letter, he writes to his readers with certainty, with clarity, that familiar with the soldier and how the equipment they use, in fact, is the actual equipment we need to put on as well, not from a material perspective, from a, but from a, a spiritual perspective. 
And Paul was very consistent. If you know his letters, you know in 2 Corinthians, he talks about the military illustrations in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and 2 Timothy chapter 2 as well. So he's very familiar with the soldiers that would have been around him at that time and the power of the Roman power uh, and uh, what that stood for. So today we'll see Paul use the same illustration and he calls it the armor of God. Now let me talk and start off by saying what is the purpose of the armor of God and I'll give it to you right up front, especially you students who pe pencil pushers who take notes here. Let me give you right up front so you don't miss this. That the purpose of the armor of God is to prepare us, prepare you to resist the schemes, the clever, the trickery, the, 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 the divisive ways that the devil comes against you. We'll see that in verse 11. Two, he enables you to stand firm in the strength of the Lord. We see, we'll see that at the verses 10 and 11 and 13. And the third reason why we put the armor of God in on daily is being protected by all parts of that full armor of God that gives you and equips you to be able to walk daily in the confidence in the Lord. So we put this armor of God that he's going to explain to us why to resist the devil, enable us to stand firmly in the Lord in our life and to be able to protect us and equip us to be able to walk confidently in the Lord that he has for us in this life. That is why we have to put the armor of God on. The question now is the need for putting it on. We know the purpose of putting it on, but why do I need to put it on daily? Well, as a believer in Christ, you struggle is not merely in the physical realm. You also are in a massive spiritual battle against darkness and wickedness and powerful spiritual forces against you that we will see in verse, as noted in verse 12. There is an enemy that wants to come against you as a child of God. They want to keep you from doing what God has called you to do as a child of his. And two, as a Christian, we face three enemies. And we saw that back in, in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, that we have three enemies. We have the world that comes against us. We have our flesh that comes against us, and we have Satan, his demonic forces that come against us as well on a daily basis. Sometimes more severe than other times, but they're constantly there, and we're constantly battling those three enemies. What is the world? The world refers to the system around us that is opposed to God that caters to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We see that in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. It describes that worldliness that we have to battle. Another simple way of putting it is, it is a society that we have to deal with, that we're part of, that is apart from or separate or does not want anything to do with God. So when you take a society that wants nothing to do with God, that is worldliness. That is what we're dealing with in regards to the very simplistic definition of the world. And are we not facing that today? We see it at every front, at every level of government and society. They're constantly pushing, wanting to push God out of this life in any form or fashion. It's coming up, right? Christmas is right around the corner, and how many people put, want to put an Xmas 
in front of Christmas to get rid of Christ. Do you think that's just a short, quick way of putting it? No, maybe subconsciously or consciously, they are trying to take out Christ in any form or fashion. It's, gonna, it's all around us. The flesh is the old nature that, is, that we inherited from Adam. A nature that is opposed to God and can do nothing spiritual to please God. So anytime you're in the flesh and you think and leaning on your own understanding even and think you can please God apart from him, you're fooling yourself. It's just the flesh that is doing it. So many times we find ourselves battling where the flesh wants to do what they want to do. Even in the name of doing it for God, I'm going to do it for God. But you really are just in your flesh trying to please yourself and to try to achieve something in and own your flesh. It's not led by God at all. And of course, the devil is very easy. It's our adversary. It tempts you to sin so that our effectiveness as a believer in Christ will be destroyed. That's what the devil and his henchmen try to do, is to squish you and I to stop us from doing anything for God. And if we do it, do it so messed up that it really messes and causes a rippling effect across the church. So where does the confidence come into wearing the armor of God? Where's our confidence when we're in these spiritual battles? Well, as a believer, you are a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17. You're not the old person. You're now a new creation in God. That's where your confidence comes from. And are established in your position in Christ. You're a child of God. You're, he's your savior. He's your master. You should have great confidence going into spiritual battles on a day-to-day basis. And you must remember you're a new creation. You're not the old sinful man anymore. You've been forgiven in Christ. The confidence also comes, too, is that because of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, you as a believer can be more of a conqueror since you're no longer enslaved by sin. The chains of sin and the ball of chains of sin that are around your neck and around your ankles and chains that hold you into that sin has been set free. They're not on you. If you're a born-again believer, you're a child of God, those, those, those are no longer on you. You're free in Christ. So you have great confidence to be able to go to battle. You're nothing restricting you. Three, as a believer, you have free access to the mercy and the grace and the wisdom and the power of God in, in Jesus Christ through prayer. And through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, you are enabled to discern between truth and error, between right and wrong. And you can receive divine guidance by the Holy Spirit directing your lives. If you stop leaning on your own understanding, and, but in acknowledging in all your ways him, he shall direct your paths. It's divine guidance. And plus, the Holy Spirit can keep you from fulfilling the desires of the flesh that comes up. And fifthly, your confidence comes to the fact that God has given you and I the his word, the Bible. He's giving you his word. If you sit there and you're talking to someone and there's times where you're having a conversation, someone says, I give you my word. You sit there and go, mm-hmm. You said that last time that you said you were going to change. Mm-hmm. But it's not you and I are the one that's giving our word. We're saying God has given you his word. 
How dare I question his word? He is faithful. We may not be faithful in our words at times, but he is always faithful in his word. His word is truth, and we can hold on to that truth. So what's our responsibility knowing this? Your responsibility and my responsibility is that we can see today in the armor of God that we need to put it on daily. And since each piece of God's armor is designed, as we will see, to protect you and I in very specific ways in our spiritual battles. And you will remain vulnerable to defeat if you choose or I choose not to put on the whole armor of God and only put on certain pieces. You and I become vulnerable in that walk that day. You're vulnerable for the attack to come in a way that you are not protected if you're not careful. That's why as we study this, we're going to take this piece by piece so that you and I are very clear how we can walk in victory because we have the whole armor of God on. And so Paul is going in these last few verses, he's going to give us basically uh, four truths or four topics that we're going to take through. Four topics as we see how he breaks this down and how that we can, if we apply these truths, we can walk in victory daily with him. We can push back the world. We can push down and push away so the flesh doesn't have control of us. And we can certainly push away the devil and his henchmen that come against us to try to bring us down. The first one here we'll see here in verses 10 through 12. Read along with me here. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the walls of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness, of this age against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So we see right here in the very first section, Paul describes the enemy. Who is our enemy? First of all, we take note right up front, and the key thing that we need to emphasize, he says, finally, my brethren, my sisters here, be strong in the Lord. Don't be strong in your own strength. Don't be strong in what the world can offer you. Don't be strong in anything or anybody else. Yes, you're a very big, strong husband, or knight in armor. Yes, yes, he's strong. But your strength is not in him. Your, your, your reliance is not on him. Your complete alliance is, right here as Paul says, is on the strong, be strong in the Lord who will never leave you or forsake you, who will always have the strength and always will be there for you in your time of trouble. But notice this. Not only that, but we notice the fact that we're when we became new creations, we were to put off the old clothes, the old, the, the old ways, and to put on Christ, his righteousness. He clothes us, and there's a new thing. And, and we see here Paul talks about this, these clothes. What does it look like? It's called the armor of God. 
And he describes it here, but the enemy, and so we understand the enemy. Because we need to understand the enemy, we're going to go through this because Paul obviously made it, wanted to make sure it's clear that as believers, we can be strengthened not only by the person of the Lord, but also by his resources given to you and I as his children. He, Dad doesn't sit there and say, you're my child, and then say, fend for yourself. But a good parent provides for their children for all that they need for this life. Amen? Are you tracking with me? Are we, okay, good. I'm just warming up here. We're going to get going on this. So here we go. So the first thing he talks about, if you notice, is the leader of the pack here. Who's the leader of the enemy? Well, the devil. The enemy was, has many different names. Don't we know this in Scripture, right? The devil means accuser. Because he accuses God's people day and night before the throne of God. We see that in Revelations chapter 12, verses 17, or 7 through 11. We see Satan is another name for him. Satan means adversary. Why? Because he is the enemy of God. He's an adversary against God himself. We see another name for him, the tempter. He's called the tempter in, in Matthew 4, 3. He's also called the murderer and a liar in John 8, 44. He's also compared to as a lion in 1 Peter 5, 8. We studied that yesterday in men's breakfast. He's a serpent. Genesis 3, 1. Revelations 12, 9. The angel of light, 2 Corinthians 11, 13 through 15. As well as the God of this age, small g. So here is the leader, the devil himself. Where did he come from? This spiritual creature that seeks to oppose God and defeat his work. Where did he come from? He came from the beginning. He was Lucifer, the son of the morning, Isaiah 14, 12 through 15. And that he was cast down because of his pride and his desire to occupy God's throne. A worship leader. Supposedly serving God. But chose that he wanted to be and take over God's throne. The pride of life. The sin that needed to be conquered. The sin. And so that is where he came from. And where he tried to take and these angels, and, and he is an angel, to come. And in, in the scripture even talks about how he was the most beautiful creation. He had the look. Had the talent. had the position to influence others. And he chose instead to allow God to be God and him not. He wanted what he wanted in his life. The pride of life. Many mysteries are connected with the origin of Satan. But what is, what is going to happen to him, when that's going to happen to him, is not a mystery. 
we know that ultimately God is going to throw him into the lake of fire. And he will no longer have any say whatsoever. For he will live. And since he is a created being and not eternal, he's not as God. He can't compare uh, Satan with God. They're not on the same. They're not opposites. They're not at all. So don't even try to make him from an eternal perspective as God. He is limited in his knowledge and his activity. And unlike God, Satan is not all-knowing. He is not all-powerful. He is not in everywhere present. So don't try to do that. People try to make Satan something bigger than he is. He's not. Then how does he accomplish so much in so many different parts of the world? Why does it feel like he's always after me? Because it's not him He's got some buddies. One third of the angels became fallen angels. They were kicked out of the heaven by wrong weather because they decided to follow Lucifer and not God. And so Paul here describes his, these helpers. What are these helpers? Paul says that they're principalities, they're powers, they're rulers, they're spiritual weaknesses in high places, he says. So this defines these demonic creatures that are ranked among themselves that assist Satan in his attacks against believers. The Apostle John hinted at the fact that these, the third of the angels fell with Satan when he rebelled against God. Even in Daniel wrote that Satan's angels struggled against God's angels for control over the affairs of the nations. We see that in Daniel chapter 10. There's a struggle going on even today between nations and people think it's because these are men and women who are ruling these nations. No, it's not. It is satanic, demonic forces going against each other. They're just using the people that are put in those positions. Spiritual battlegrounds is going on in this world in the, in, in the sphere of the heavenlies and you and I are part of that battleground. And knowing this makes walking in victory a vital, important thing for you and I to do and live in this life. We must have the armor of God daily. The important point is that our battle is not against flesh and blood, Paul says here in the scripture. That is one of the number one things that you and I struggle with when people are coming against us. We want to butt heads and fight with the person next to you. Because they oppose what you want, when you want it. Or they oppose the fact that you're following God and they don't want you to follow God. And it can be either way. But know that we do not fight against flesh and blood, but against these principalities, these demonic forces that are raising up and influencing people in that situation. And it could be you that he's actually messing with, that causes you to confront and con have conflict with someone because something was said and you were in a, in a place where you allow your flesh to be stirred up by the, the enemy or the world to, to, to stir you up. Or the demonic force itself. So you and I have to come to agreement and understanding what the scripture says. When someone comes to you and comes in your space to confront you. And it could be your spouse. It could be your children. It could be your neighbor. It could be your coworker, your boss. 
It doesn't matter. The fact is, is you must see the, the situation as it is and realize you're not going into battle with that person. But understand there's probably forces beyond that person that's actually going to is what you're having to deal with. And the only way, as we will see, is making sure you have your armor of God on. And ultimately, we'll see that you need to be empowered or energized by prayer through that situation to make it through. And we will see that as Paul lays that out. So not only does Satan has helpers, but Satan's abilities here. If you remember, during Paul's ministry in Ephesus, a riot took place that could have destroyed the church. We saw that in Acts 19, verses 21 through 41. And it wasn't caused by Demetrius and his associates. For behind them were Satan and his associates that was causing the problem. But if you remember, Paul and the church prayed. And the opposition was silenced by that prayer. They didn't pick up the swords and start material swords and, and clubs and stuff and, and law, lawyers and whatever else to combat them. They prayed to bring them back into a position in, in an opposition to be silenced. But Paul's strong point here indicates that Satan is a strong enemy, of course. We see this in verses 10 through 12. But we need to know the power of God is able to stand against him. We must never underestimate the devil. But we must never, ever underestimate our father. But God is more powerful in any situation you find yourself. And you must understand, he is, he is not comparing to a lion and a dragon for just for fun. When we describe de the devil as a lion and, 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 and as, a, as a, uh, a, a dragon, it's because he is fierce. He is destructive. He has the power to destroy. The book of Job, if anything, can tell you this. The book of Job tells us his power can do to a man's body or to a man's home, to a man's wealth or a man's friends. But Jesus calls Satan a thief who's to steal and to kill and destroy, we see. But remember, nothing could touch Job's life unless it was a father filter first. God in his wisdom allowed Satan to have a way with him to take everything from him except for his life. Why? Well, if you've read Job and you've read the scriptures, you understand that God's wisdom is above your wisdom and his ways are not your ways and his thoughts are not your thoughts and how he's going to orchestrate your life to refine you to become Christ-like is completely in his wisdom and understanding and not ours. And his ways are perfect. Our ways are not. And so we must rest on the truth of God that we see in the scriptures. Not only is Satan strong, but he is also wise and subtle. We fight against, the, Paul says here, the wiles of the devil, meaning cunning, crafty ways that he works in and around people. Very crafty, very cunning. The Christian cannot afford to be ignorant of the devices of Satan. 
Some men are cunning and crafty. They lie in wait to deceive others. They have been empowered by Satan. Some are even demonically possessed as non-believers. Believers can't be possessed. The Holy Spirit dwells within you, and he doesn't share anything with the devil at all. But if you're not saved today, you don't have the Holy Spirit seal you for eternity, then you are at risk to be, to be demonically filled. But today, if you give your life to Christ and surrender your life to Christ and be filled with the Holy Spirit, you don't have to worry about those things. So we see here that, yes, Satan is cunning. Yes, he uses men and makes these men and women around us very cunning and crafty, and they lie and wait and deceive. But behind them is this the anti, or the I should say, the arch deceiver, Satan, because he masquerades as the angel of light. He seeks to blind men's minds to the truth of God's word. So when you come across someone, your coworker, you really like, you really are a, a family member, you love, just know that they're being blinded by Satan. And only through prayer are we going to ask and the, for the power of God to, to lift those blindness from them. To, to, and it's only by the gospel that it's going to happen, by sharing the truth, of, the truth of who Jesus Christ is. There is no other way. And the fact that Paul uses the word here in the scripture, wrestle, we're going to wrestle. That means there's hand-to-hand combat that we're going to be dealing with. And then sometimes that's what you feel like. You're being wrestled and you've been pinned to the ground and you can't move. Because you are in a wrestling. We're involved in hand-to-hand combat, spiritual combat. We're not just mere spectators as Christians going through this life with no purpose. Satan wants to use our external enemy, the world, and the internal enemy, our flesh, to defeat us. And his weapons and battle plans are intense. So it comes now here, what does Paul say? What is the armor of God? What is the equipment that you must and I must put on daily? Well, he makes it very clear here, verses 13 through 17. Follow along. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Verse 14, stand therefore having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplications in the spirit, being watchful to this end. With all perseverance and supplications for all the saints. But let's just take 13 through 17, the equipment. I I see in verse 18, prayer is part of the equipment. But let's just take the the very clear definition, the pieces of the armor of God. First is, since we are fighting enemies in the spiritual world, we need to have spiritual equipment or spiritual means to be able to push back for offensive and defensive means. 
You don't go to war without a good equipment. You don't go to war with offensive and defensive, just only offensive or only defensive. You must have both going to war. God has provided the whole armor for us. He is our Father. He provides. We have to just choose to put it on. You have to choose to put it on. And we dare not omit any part of it because Satan looks for the unguarded area where he can go and get a foothold in our lives. Paul commanded his readers to put on the armor, take the weapons, withstand Satan, all of which we do by faith. Knowing that Christ has already conquered Satan and that the spiritual armor and weapons are available to you and I as a child of God. And by faith, we accept what God has gives us and go out to meet the enemy. We stand. We don't flee. We can stand and go to battle if we have faced with going to the battle. The day is evil, Paul says here. The enemy is evil. But we must remember what Romans 8.31 says to you and I. If God is for us, who can be against us? Amen? We must remember the verses. We must etch those in our hearts. We must memorize those. We must have it come back to us to help us remember in the times of battle. If God is for us, who can, be, who can even stand against us? God has given us the armor of God to be able to stand. And the first thing he says right up front is the belt of truth here, verse 14, the first part of 14. Just as a belt held the Roman soldier's tunic out of the way for the easy move to, to be able to move the legs and to run and to battle and to, to get foundation in, the, in, in his, his legs. We must have that movement. We must understand. We must use the biblical truth, allow you to you and I to move freely in everyday life. Because if you know the belt of truth, it pulls it up, it brings everything together as we will see the rest of the armor. We must have that support around our core of who we are. And if our core is not stable, if your life is not based on truth, if you don't continue to pour, uh, to pour out uh, being an honest person, a person with integrity, a person who shares the word of God, not sharing false things that are going on from this world, but sharing the truth of God and prepared to give the truth. In any situation you find yourself, you must be a man and a woman of integrity. Because if you're not, then what happens is you're not stable then. Because if you've been show, um, sharing and, and spreading falsehoods or half-truths or whatever you want to call little white lies, whatever you want to try to co you know, comfort yourself with, it still lies. Then you become uncertain and then the enemy finds where you have lied and then looks for that weak place in your life and comes and finds a way to take your life down through that lie. But when you're belted in truth and someone says and comes against you, you can stand by that truth. You can stand so firmly because you know it's truth and it doesn't matter what they think and feel. 
It's truth, and it comes from the Word of God. So they can stand there. Satan is a liar, and he's going to constantly choose to try to lie and to work through your life with lies. But the believer whose life is controlled by truth will defeat him. The belt holds the other parts of the armor together. The truth is the integrating force in the life of a victorious Christian. A man with integrity, with a clear conscience, can face the enemy without fear. The belt also holds the, held the sword, the, uh, the offensive weapon that God has given. And unless we practice truth, we cannot use the word of truth in times of battle. And once a lie gets into the life of a believer, everything begins to fall apart. Look at King David. King David lied about his sin with Bathsheba. And nothing went right for him from that point on. And we see that in Psalm 32 and 51, where the consequences and, and discipline came on his life because of that lie. Truth that comes solely from God's word is emphasis to a correct understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ. We must be solid on who he is in our relationship with him. And when our life is belted like that, we can stand and we can face the enemy. But you can't just have truth. Well, we see here we need to have the breastplate of righteousness on the second part of verse 14. This piece of armor is made of, was, was made of metal. It was metal plates. It was chains. It covered the body of the soldier from the neck to the waist, front and back. So when, it, when we see that, it symbolizes the righteousness in Christ. It also is, it, it emphasizes as a righteousness life in Christ. But the breastplate was to protect the front and the back of the Roman soldier from the hand-to-hand -hand close combat with the enemy. So the breastplate of righteousness is our obedience to God's word in all of your deeds and all of your works and day to day. It's all your thoughts, all your words, all your actions must be part of what is protecting you. You must be able to be equipped to stand firm and not to be overcome by any of Satan's uh, diabolical attacks or crafty schemes in everyday life. See, as a believer, the righteousness of Jesus Christ is putting on you by God as a result of your spiritual new birth, right? You've been clothed in righteousness. Who you are, it's change. It's, this is your new you. And you must remember that you've been made righteous by God, not based on some works that you've done. It's all based on what God has done. He has clothed you. You're a new, you're a child of God. You've been clothed by your Father. And this breastplate of righteousness is a demonstrated by living to please the Lord in every area of your life instead of living to please yourself. You choose because God has clothed you with his righteousness. You, out of that love, you're going to choose to live a righteous life in your thoughts, your actions, your behavior, your words. You want to please your God and your desires, your common sense, 
or your world's or the world's wisdom. You want to please him in everything. And you must have that. Every day, God, I'm going to please you. I'm going to put on the breastplate of righteousness. I want to please you. I do not need to please myself. And I don't become a man pleaser. I want to please you. Satan is an accuser. But he cannot accuse the believer who is living a godly life in the power of the Spirit. Satan cannot accuse you if you're living a life that's pleasing to God. But if there's some part of your life where you're not pleasing God, I assure you Satan or one of his demonic forces are going to condemn you and remind you of your failure or your shortcomings. God didn't come to condemn you. He came and gave you life. So remember you've been clothed. You have the breastplate of righteousness. Remember what he has done for you. Amen? See, when Satan accuses the Christian, it is the righteousness of Christ that assures you and I as a believer of his salvation, of his salvation in our lives. But our positional righteousness in Christ, without practical righteousness in the daily life, gives Satan the opportunity to tell us, yes, I'm saved, but I want to live a life like I'm not saved. That is going to cause a weak point where Satan will come and defeat you. You have to choose to live practically in line with your position of being saved. That's important for you to remember. You've got the belt of truth. You've got the breastplate of righteousness. Now the shoes of the gospel. As a Roman soldier, you must have these sandals that they had, had special sandals. And they had these, these um, hobnails in the shoes to give them better footing to keep them from slipping and, and protect their feet from injury in the time of battle. So should you and I be equipped spiritually by liberating message of Jesus Christ. Our footing must be solidly planted on the gospel and the message of Jesus Christ. If you waver on who Jesus Christ is, your feet are not solidly prepared to take the, the, heat, the hit or the, the forces that will be coming against you in the battle. You must have good footing because someone's going to come and test you. Did God really say, is Jesus really who he is? He's not God. He's not this. He's not that. He, where is he showing up for you in this time of battle or these times of affliction and all these other things? And you must be firm in who your Jesus Christ is to you, your Savior, your Master. Because if you're not shotted or you don't have shoes of the gospel, if, it's, if you're not standing with and withstanding what comes on, then you do not have the peace of God that comes from the gospel. And the peace of God only comes from the gospel. And if when we have that peace, we do not need to worry about the attack of Satan or men. We must be at peace with God and with each other if we are to defeat the devil. We see that in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 7 as well. 
chooses the gospel is the believer's stability and sure footness from the gospel, which gives him peace to stand in the battle. Practically, if you find yourself in the middle of a battle, whatever that is that you're in right now, because each of us, I believe, are in a battle of some sort in some sense every day. Are you reminded in your, in your heart that you're saved? That Jesus paid that penalty. That he came to give you life. That he went to the cross for you. That your sins have been forgiven. They're, they're wiped as white as snow. I love that. I should. I hope that is recorded, isn't it? I, I love that. Because if you don't keep your mind on the fact that you're saved, that Jesus paid it all, then you become very weak in your stance when the battle comes against you or a man comes or a woman comes against you with their words or your flesh flares up because you're hungry, you're tired and you're stressed and the flesh seems to have a hold and the enemy knows you're that. Those things are there and he says, perfect. That's a great time. They're weak. Let's go in for it. Let's get the flesh rolling. And you say, no, no, no. I'm saved. No, 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 no. I've been clothed in righteousness. He will provide. He's my protector. And you're going through that, and you're pushing back, and you're starting to worship God, and you're starting to stand firm, and you're holding to the truths of what God has done for you in that battle. And then you need to have the shield of faith, verse 16. The shield was a large, usually four feet by two feet, made of wood covered with this really thick, tough leather. And this shield were designed in a way so when they were in battle with their soldier buddies, they could stand shoulder to shoulder, one in, in unity, and the, the, the shields would come together, and it would be like this solid wall going against the enemy to push it back. There was no break. They were solid. They were linked. They were there together to fight the battle. They were together. You're not by yourself. You have people to the left and to the right of you flanking you to be in prayer for you and be in the battle with you. Nowhere in scriptures do you see a Christian, a child of God, isolated. Absolutely not. So if your thought in your mind at any point, I can be isolated. I don't have to be around the people of God. I don't need to go to church. I don't need to be things. You're being Satan is at work in your mind and you must fight that. Because there's nowhere in the scriptures you are to be isolated. You are not to forsake the fellowship. You are to be engaged in with the family of God. Families, I'll tell you one thing. If your children are trying to isolate themselves in your home, Satan is at work in your child and you must fight. You must fight. You better go to prayer as we will see with Paul will say at the end because those children are at great risk. Yes, I advocate, if you have to, take the door off their room. But don't let them isolate themselves. Because it, Satan is at work. But the field, shield of faith, 
The faith mentioned here is not a saving faith. You've already saved. These are, he's talking to believers here. But it's but rather a living faith, a trust in the promises and the power of God. Faith is a defensive weapon which protects you and I from Satan's fiery darts. Remember, in those times when they fought, they took and they dipped their, their, um, their uh, arrows into some, some, some kind of flammable liquid, and they drew back, and they just let it go, and these fiery darts starts coming in. They had to pull up their shields to block and to keep those fiery darts from hitting them. If you do not put and bring your shield of faith, of faith in Jesus Christ, you are vulnerable of those fiery darts to hit you all day long. And when the dart hits you and penetrates you, then a flame, a burning sensation will take place within your life and it will take hold of you. And it will start burning in you and it will destroy you. You cannot allow a flaming dart coming from Satan to, to come into your life again. And an example is your past. Satan goes, oh, let's take this one from their past. And you don't have the shield of faith up to block it. Then what happens is you start going back into the past and say you think you're the same way you were in the past. You know, you're a new creation. You're God is my power, my strength. He is, he's pulled me out of that old life. I'm no longer that. You don't allow that fiery dart to take and plant in you and, and, and that heat to start boiling up and you start ravaging and spiraling out of control of the past. Don't do it. The shield of faith will keep you from those fiery darts. What are those? Heart, it will attack your heart, your mind, like through lies and blasphemous thoughts and hateful thoughts and about others and doubts and, and burning desires for sin. Those are fiery darts that are thrown at you daily, sometimes more intense than others. But if we do not by faith quench these darts, they will light a fire within and we will disobey God in that lie, that blasphemous thoughts will carry it out. The challenge is we never know when Satan's going to send us a fiery dart. So we must always walk by faith and use the shield of faith. Always. Because we never know throughout the day when those fiery darts are going to come. Remember that you are never adequate in your own strength to win any spiritual battle. Against Satan. There's no way. But you're to depend totally by faith in your Lord Jesus Christ. He will fight for you. Verse 17, the helmet of salvation. Just as the Roman soldier's helmets protected his head from the crushing blows from the enemy, so should your reliance be on the completeness and the this, this certainty of your salvation to protect you from the thoughts that would hinder you from becoming more like Christ Jesus. You must remember daily that your sins have been paid for. You have been purchased. You are as white as snow. You must remember that without a, a doubt in your minds. 
because we want God to continue to do the good work that he promises to do in us to make us more Christ-like. And because your salvation is in Christ Jesus, you are able to bring your thoughts under captivity into subjection and concentrate on being obedient to Christ as God continually renews your mind through the reading and the studying of the word of God, changing you into the image of Christ. That's what he wants to do. And don't let the enemy tell you you're not saved. Because God says he saved you. He did the work. It's not based on what you did or did not do. You gave your life over to Christ. Our faith is in Jesus Christ alone. By grace alone. Finally, we see an offensive weapon that God gives us. It's called the sword of the spirit at the end of verse 17. This sword is the offensive weapon God provides. So Roman soldiers had a sword to be able to fight. You're not sitting here just taking blocks and taking blows. You're able to fight back. And what is the sword of the spirit? It's the word of God. See, the Roman soldier wore this in his belt, the belt of truth. And he would pull that knife out to be able to go hand-to-hand combat with the enemy. To fight back what was being thrown at them. And we must understand, even in Hebrews 4.12, says he compares the word of God to the sword because it is a sharp and is able to pierce the inner man just as a material sword is able to pierce the body. We can be cut to the heart by the word of God. And when the word convicts us of our sins, Peter tried to use a sword to defend Jesus in the garden, but he learned very quickly. The sword does not do the work compared to the sword of the spirit where it can cut right to the core. But he learned at Pentecost that the sword of the spirit does much better job of doing what needs to be done in the eyes of God. Do you remember Moses? God called him to go, and he, he, tried, he also tried to conquer with a physical sword. What did that get him in Exodus chapter 2? But only to discover that God's word alone was more than enough to defeat Egypt. God spoke, and he brought an entire nation down. And just as a Roman soldier knew how to use his sword effectively on hand-to-hand combat, you and I must know the word of God, the word of truth, so well we know how to use it in time of war. When the enemy attacks one way, you know how to correctly, in context, apply the word of God against the enemy. So we must know the word of God. We must continue to study the word of God to be able to push back effectively. When Jesus tempted by Satan in the wilderness, what did he do? Christ used the word, the sword of the spirit and defeated the enemy. Three times Jesus said, it is written. But be very careful though. Satan mocks and and, and mimics 99% of what God does because he knows it's true. It's the 1% that will get you. 
Remember, Satan also used the word. He says, for it is written, Luke 4.10. But the problem is, is he does not quote it completely and accurately. He takes it out of context. So the better you know the word of God, the easier it will be for you to detect Satan's lies and reject his offers and ways. And Satan loves to use people to take the word of God and twist it to try to bring you down and to mislead you from the, the solid truth of God. We must be very careful what you listen to. You must be like a Berean. You must take everything you hear and go back. Like I say, take what I teach you today. I give you scripture. Go back and study and spend time with the word of with God about it. You must analyze. Look at that. <clears throat> the whole armor of God is a picture of Jesus Christ. Did you notice this? Through these, the armor of God, you see this is a true picture of Jesus Christ. Christ is the truth. He is our righteousness. He is our peace. He is faithfulness makes this possible by our, in our faith. He is our salvation. He is the word of God. This means that when we trust Christ with all of our heart and mind, soul and strength, we receive the armor daily. It's all about Jesus. done and continues to do in our lives. Paul told the Romans what to do with the armor in Romans 13. He says to wake up, cast off sin, put on the armor of light. And we do this by putting on the Lord Jesus Christ daily. And it's by faith we do this. We put on the armor. We put on our trust in God for the victory that he has already has. We walk in victory as a child of God. And you must believe it. And when you don't do that, when you don't put your life and trust in Jesus Christ, you will be like King David. Look what happened to King David when he put off his armor and returned to his palace to be to live a simple, joyful, joyful, relaxed. I don't need this. I don't need the armor. I'm not going to go to war. I'm not going to be out in the battle. I'm just going to have an easy life. And he gets back to the palace. He takes off the armor. And what happens? There was greater danger for him at his palace than it was in the battlefield, wasn't there? He let his guard down, wanting to live a, a cushy life apart from what God has called him to do, and he fell, fell to sin. We can't allow that to happen because we're never out of the reach of Satan's devices, and so we must never be without the armor of whole, the whole armor of God. But how does this all this armor happen? You must have the power of God working in and through that relationship. So we see here Paul in verses 18 through 20. He says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, as he continues in verse 19, we're going to see, he says, and for me, that utterance, that ability to speak may be given to me that I may 
may open up my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So prayer is the energy. Prayer is the power that is going to bring this armor into together and to be able to use it for, for the good of God and in your life. Prayer is that enabler of the Christian shoulder, 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 soldier, water please, to wear the armor and swing the sword. Prayer is where you get the power. There's power in prayer. There's power in praise. He says here, pray always. This doesn't mean you sit there and you're constantly praying in in, in a, a praying position, as they say. But praying always means you're constantly in tune with your Lord. You're constantly listening for him. Everything you do throughout the day is integrated with your Lord directing your steps. Directing your thoughts. Thinking about what he wants you to think about. Constantly, Lord, what do I do in this situation? What do I do here? What do you want me to do next? Or what, do you, what do you have for me today, Lord? That is what it means to pray always or pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5.17. It's not the amount of speaking outwardly. It's always to be communion or communicating with your Lord like it's breathing. Your, your phone is never off the hook. It's never on busy and it's never on silence. It's never, I'm too busy, I don't want to hear from God because I really want to go do this. And if I listen for God, he's, I know he's going to tell me no. That means you've taken them off. You've put them on busy signal. God, you should never put on busy signal. Too busy, God, for you. I got my own thing to do. That's a dangerous place to be because you will become weak. You will not have the power of, of God in your life when you put him on busy or block <laughs> as they say today put that number on block no that'd be a bad place for you and I to be in not only pray always but pray with all prayer because there's different kinds of prayers prayer supplications intercessions thanksgivings the believer who prays only to ask for things for themselves or what they're missing out on is not complete what God has called you to do. You and I are to pray with good thanksgivings. We are to pray to intercede for others. When, those, when the enemy comes after you, you just start talking to God about things, and then you fight back with the word of God, and you start praying, as we learned yesterday in the men's breakfast, you start praying for others within the church, those men, those women, who to pray for them, that, you, that God would just do a work through their life. Now you're pushing again, back against the, the enemy. The enemy doesn't like that. Every time he comes after you, you swing back and then you start going in power with prayer for other people and his people. Satan is going to stop messing with you after a while because it's, it's counteracting what he's trying to do. He's trying to bring you down and you're being more energized and now praying for other people within the congregation. Satan ain't going to like that. So we need to fight back. So prayer and I'll pray. Thanksgiving is a great prayer weapon of defeating Satan. Remember Job again in Job 
It says, and the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. You know the story of Job. He lost everything. But when it changed where he just kept worshiping God and he started praying for his friends, that's when things changed in his life. We must do the same thing. That's correct. That's correct. And that's what we must do. That's how we push back Satan. How many people do you know who have, you have loved ones that are not saved? How often do we pray for them? When the enemy comes after us, we just counteract by praying for our unsaved loved ones. When you know that you have brothers and sisters who are struggling, who are maybe sick, who are hurting, when Satan comes out, get your eyes off yourself. Put them on him and pray for others. That is how we combat the, the enemy. So not only pray always, not only pray with all prayer, but we're praying in the spirit. The Bible's formula is for we to pray to the Father through the Son in the spirit. Romans 8, 26 through 27. Telling us that only the spirit's power can we pray in the will of God. That's what we want. We just want the will of God in this situation. We want to continue to ask God for the will of God. We want to pray in the spirit. Because our prayers can be very selfish. They can be very selfish at times and out of the will of God. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle, there was a small golden altar standing there before the veil. And here's where the priests burned the incense. And the incense we see as a picture is, the, is a picture of prayer. Coming up to God that is a sweet smelling aroma of, his, of the of burnt offering. God, I'm, 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 I'm surrendering my life to you. God, what is, what is your will for my life? God, I want to please you in all things. It's a sweet-smelling aroma to our Father. It is possible to pray fervently in the flesh and never get through to God. Oh, I've been praying so hard, so hard. You won't believe hours. But if you're praying in the flesh, it will amount to nothing. It's not according to the will of God. But it is also very po possible and very, very possible where you quietly sit and you pray in the spirit and see God's hand do great things in and through your life. So pray always, pray with all prayer, pray in the spirit, pray with your eyes open. Paul says here in the scripture, watching, Keep alert. You must be alert. Be sober-minded, as we learned earlier in the scriptures. Do not allow anything, drink or anything, to cloud your mind so you're not become alert. You must be alert. The phrase watch and pray occurs often in the Bible. Nehemiah was repairing the walls of Jer uh, Jerusalem, and the enemy was trying to stop the work. What happened? Nehemiah defeated the enemy by watching and praying. He says in Nehemiah 4.9, Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God and we set a watch. Because he knew the enemy was coming. We must watch and pray. That is the secret of our victory over the world. Watching and praying is the, the, the secret to victory over our flesh and the, and the devil and his henchmen coming against us. We must 
stay alert. God expects us to use our God-given senses led by the Spirit so that we can detect Satan when he is beginning to do a work. When you see Satan coming into your presence or starting to rear something up in your flesh or the world is somehow trying to speak into your life, you must be alert and be watchful and not take it lazy because they're constantly looking for a way to get into your life. And you must stay in it. And finally, keep on praying. Perseverance, Paul says here. Stick to it. Continue to do it. Do not quit constantly talking to God about these things. The early believers prayed this way constantly, we see in Acts. And we too should be praying this way with perseverance and prayer. It does not mean that we are trying to twist God's arm to do it our way. That is not the right way to pray. But rather that we are deeply concerned and burdened and cannot rest until we get God's answer. According to his word about the situation we have. Prayer is not getting man's will done in heaven. It is getting God's will done on this earth. That is true prayer. And so many times we'll pray and we'll ask God and it's in line with the scriptures. You know it's his will and you, you pray once. But you fervently, consistently, boldly do not come to him and pray for the things that are in, according to his will. You give up and it's just at the time when he's ready to answer your prayer, you give up. Paul is saying to you and I, God is saying to you and I today, do not give up. Continue to pray earnestly and fervently for God's will, for that situation or situations that you're asking God, that you want his will. He will answer you. Just don't give up. And then pray for all the saints. The Lord's Prayer begins with our Father, not my Father. We pray as part of a great family that is also talking to God, and we ought to pray for one another as members of the same family. That's how he brings unity within the church. Praying for people. Paul asks for the prayer support of, his, 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 of the Ephesians here. He had been to the third heaven, remember. He had already been to the third heaven and back. And if Paul needed the prayers of the saints, how much more do you and I need him? Have you been to the third heaven and back? No. Let our prayers be help for others to defeat Satan in their life. And that victory you see taking place in someone else's life will also help you. Remember, Paul here in these verses did not ask the Ephesian believers to pray for his comfort and safety while he was in the Roman jail. It wasn't about him. It was always about others. It was for the effectiveness of his witness and ministry while he found himself in prison in the situation he found himself in. And then lastly, we close here in verse 21 through 24. But that you also may know my affairs and how I am doing. Paul is thinking about other people. They are, 
He knew they were anxiously wondering what was happening to him, if he was alive or dead. I am doing, I'm, I, I, how I am doing, uh, Tychicus, a, belie- a beloved belo- brother and a faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs and that he may comfort your hearts. And I love this because Paul writes this in many of his epistles. In verse 23 through 24, look at key words. Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. We're not fighting spiritual battles alone, my brothers and sisters. You may feel alone at times. You may feel that you're standing alone and no one cares and no one's with you and no one understands. And But that's just the enemy. It's just the flesh. It's not true. As a child of God, you're in a family and people are praying for you and want to be with you and to help you. There are other believers who stand with us in the fight to encourage us in our walk with Christ. Paul was going to send a beloved brethren with a letter, this letter, to go and to comfort with these words and encourage the brothers in the faith of the truths of God. May we encourage our brothers and sisters with the truths of God, not your wisdom, not my wisdom, God's wisdom. That's how you encourage a brother and sister. To encourage them that God is with them and and teach them the, the armor of God putting on Christ each day and following him, praying for them, not with a a selfish motive, but a giving, a a sacrifice motive. And when there's encouragement within the family of God, nowhere in the New Testament says that you're not to do these things. It, It points everything to us to do it. Everything is down a, just a very clean, straight road for us to do. The world wants to take us this way. The flesh wants to take us back and somewhere else. But God always points everyone right to the family of God, participating in the family of God, helping one another in the family of God. That is what God points us all to do, right to him. That's our unity. And so Paul closes his letter here to the Ephesian believers. The love of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's pure. It's not corrupt. It has no wrong motives here. There's no secret disloyalty. But a true, genuine love for Christ. Unfortunately, we know the story. These believers may have walked with the Lord in love for a time, but we know this in Revelation 2-4 that we see that they do lose that fervency or that, that love for Christ and that, that comes out in the, in the warning to them in, in, in Revelations. But, but note Paul's closing letter here. The peace, the love, the faith, the grace. And this is while he's a prisoner in Rome. How much more in the position that we find ourselves here today. How much more is our lives richer with the peace, the love, the faith, the grace that God has given us? Amen? We can walk in victory, my brothers and sisters.
Let us walk.